Hi, and welcome to episode 34 of Garmology. Now, as it's episode 34, I thought I might as well do a season finale. You know, 34 episodes in all, quite a nice round number. Now, for this season finale, I've got three guests. Uh, all three have both been Garmsmen on the World Dressed Dad blog and have been guests previously. We've got Sean coming in from Scotland, master of online bargain hunting. We've got uh, John coming in from the south of England. John is a uh, seeker of rabbit holes, I think we could easily say. And we have Daki, vintage collector and self-refressed prancer. Now, to get us started, I thought I'd pick a topic from the vintage clothes world. Something that keeps cropping up, and I heard it on a other podcast the other day. Someone was going on about how wonderful it was to hold a vintage garment and feel the life it has lived. The wear tells a story. And that got me wondering, is that something we really appreciate? And what sort of stories do our clothes tell? Would one of you like to kick off? I'm not as bothered um, about the story of, of the item necessarily. Um, I will tend to spend some time researching the label. Um, I'm sort of drawn to uh, unfamiliar labels on one things or um, uh, older labels and I'll tend to then do a little bit of research um, on the item. Um, but beyond beyond that and, and you know, um, whether it's you know a story as such or um you know thinking about you know how that items ended up in my possession i'm not it's not really something that's ever particularly concerned me um maybe it will in the future i don't know um but it tends to be more you know um the, you know the brand itself, um, you know, especially if it's a defunct brand or um, a label that um, I've not seen before, um, that you can generally find out enough information on the internet. Um, although sometimes it, it can be quite scant. Um, what about anybody else? Well, I, I, I found it with buying a sort of old and bespoke suits when they've actually got the name of the previous owner in it. Uh -huh. I've got suits by some great sort of minor royals and generals and bankers i had to chat had a pair of trousers from the chap that set up budweiser things like that and it's quite you know it's quite interesting to see occasionally the history of who's had it before yeah it's not a big thing but it's one of those ones that, and particularly the old military wear so it's kind of some of those have obviously had a, a quite a bit of use and i'm just kind of thinking who you know i think the provenance on some of the military stuff for collectors of that sort of thing is actually really key. But for me wearing it, it's not. But I, I, I found it really fascinating, some of the guys that have owned some of my previous suits and where they came from and uh, that sort of thing. But yeah, I, again, like you, Sean, I tend to look at labels and older brands mm. and work out what's happened to them, where they've gone, why they've gone, what they've turned into. Yeah. There was there was somebody um, just the other day had bought a, a military raincoat, somebody that was on my, on my Instagram that... Um, wasn't aware of the brand or they couldn't find any information on the brand but just just a very very quick check and um it turned out that it was like a, a manchester based sort of military um outfitters that when i when i sort of even went to google maps and found out the uh 
the street that the factory was on, and it was it was only a stone's throw from um, the modern private white factory. Um, so it was like just right across the river. Um, there was like a footbridge almost separating the, the two factories um, where the factory would have been. Um, obviously, the fact the factory that wasn't there anymore, it was replaced by housing, but little things like that, you know, I, f- I find that quite interesting to do, um, just researching the history up to, up to a point. Um, I think older labels are, you know, they're so much nicer and and so much better done than uh, than newer labels. You know, um, even things like John Smedley. You know that the new label labels are quite minimalist. They just have the name on them. Whereas the older labels, you know, had quite a bit more information on them. They just looked that bit better. Um, and yeah, uh, I think there's not doesn't seem to be a lot of effort goes into labeling stuff now. You know. How about you, Ducky? Do you often wonder what people will make of your cast-offs in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny because um, it, <clears throat> I think a lot of it is actually um, about, yeah, I guess what emotions it evokes and, you know, what ideals we think are associated with a certain period or a certain design. And obviously a lot of that is just in your own head because, you know, the stories that we probably tell ourselves, especially about vintage garments, is uh, quite selective. You know, so the... <laughs> If you find a really cool miners, uh, you know, vintage sort of denim top, you you know, you probably sort of have that image of a rugged cowboy or the sort of Levi's sort of uh, imagery. But you know, the reality of it was probably quite different. Yeah. But so yeah, I definitely fall for that sort of. I mean, it's 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 really effectively some form of branding, but you know, um, we we don't consider it that. But yeah, I, I'm definitely uh, guilty of. Uh, uh, yeah, sort of being finding that to be a really, really appealing thing about vintage clothes. I have noticed a lot of British Rail uh, uniforms and workwear for sale recently, and I have to say that makes me a little bit sad when you see what British Rail has turned into these days, and you've got piles and piles of old uniforms and stuff for sale. Well, my my one of my grandfathers was a station master, so I had his old, um, yeah, uh, railway waistcoat, the sleeved jacket jobby. Um, but yeah, and they were really well made, but it's slightly different. The polyester of uh, the wonderful Virgin Rail and all that sort of thing these days. And obviously, someone's found a gigantic warehouse full of the stuff because it is absolutely everywhere in the UK at the moment. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to catch on, sort of as a sort of workwear trend, British Rail from 20, 30 years back. You just have to go far enough into the future, right? Because, you know, every generation likes the stuff that uh, is old for them, you know. So, like the stuff that I'm into, you know, if people wore it the first time around, you know, in the 50s or 60s, they just look at it and think, gosh, why are you wearing old clothes? No, it's true. I've seen people, I've seen the amount of money that 90s band t-shirts go for now. Exactly. Which is insane. The things I used to wear at university, I'm like, my Nirvana t-shirt's worth like a grand now. I'm like, wow, I should have kept that instead of throwing it in the bin. Exactly that. So you just wonder, you know, what's the next thing? You know, will it be that really cool, uh, I don't know, H&M top that we all threw away? It's made from plastic or last forever. There'll be like monkeys in spacesuits 10,000 years in the future finding H&M remnants. <laughs> I think with it with the British Rail stuff though that there's always been 
a market with railway enthusiasts um, buying uh, railway gear. You know, um, I, I'm, a, I'm a great fan of, of the uh, the Heritage Railway and, you know, the sort of the shops that are attached to them and the uh, warehouses. And, uh, you know, you tend to find that there's, there's items for sale hats and, and jackets and, and waistcoats and stuff that, that, that there is obviously a market for it um, you know not so much in the uh, sort of train spotter field but more um, sort of railway enthusiasts that will, will collect anything from a specific um, era um, or anything you know even get it down to the point where um, a specific aspect of um, British Rail, whether it's motor rail or sleeper services or um, buffet services, and they'll collect everything, you know, whether it's uniforms, packaging, everything concerned with that particular. Um, and you know, it, it's it's quite interesting. I'm, I'm like absolutely not knocking these people because it's. I think anybody that has an interest in it like that, I find that interesting myself. You know, that anybody that's that's enthusiastic about these things, and I think it's it's easy to to just go, oh yeah, they're so sad, but actually they're not. You know, it's just like a, a great hobby to have. Um, but yeah, yeah, I've seen I've seen these uniforms for sale, and not not massively expensive. You know. Um, Sort of probably the same price as you would you would buy a polyester suit and buttons or whatever for um, today that they could buy a um, authentic British Rail, uh, you know, stewards uniform or whatever. Um, but, so yeah. the interesting thing about that is that you know the history and the sort of heritage value of that is just as you know relevant or as interesting as you know, French workwear or, you know, the military garments or whatever, but it just doesn't have the same sort of uh, public uh, appeal or sort of popular appeal. And I guess that a lot of that is because, I don't know, Ryan Gosling didn't wear it in the movie, but eventually that could happen, right? The yeah. right person wears it and then suddenly that will sort of take off and it will become like the next thing that we all want. Yeah, absolutely. So there could be an adventure film um or a disaster film set on a um, a motor rail service between Stirling and um, Brockenhurst, um, set in nineteen seventy eight, where um, you know there's somebody's car's got a bomb on it or something. They can I'd watch that. I'd watch that. Mini metros with bombs on it, just parked beside the railway. I can see it happening. I'd, I'd fund it. I'd be honest. With you. I was going to say, Nick, you might recognise this. So what I felt is, <clears throat> as a sort of fellow Scandi. A few years ago, those old uh, Scandi jumpers suddenly became all the rage because of all the sort of Nordic films that were shown. Um, Which ones are you thinking of? There was in particular The Bridge and The Killing. And, you know, Sarah Lund, uh, who was uh, one of the sort of characters in The Killing, I think, she was wearing that jumper. And in the UK, suddenly every single high street had these old uh, Scandinavian sort of sweaters and... The thing was, like, for me, that's kind of naff or just sort of regular, regu- it's just regular stuff. It's not interesting at all. But suddenly people were going crazy for it. And, you know, there was really expensive versions of it. And it was, you know, the thing that was featured in GQ. So I sort of had that experience at that point. So I could totally see someone being into whatever it was, the the, the sleeper's jacket uh, that <laughs> suddenly. I, I, I get that as well. I see it with barber jackets. I grew up on a farm with thousands of ancient barber jackets and wax jackets and they're practical brilliant items but they're, they're kind of high-end fashion 
fetishization wonderment with them? Is it just a bit like it's just something you wear to keep yourself dry? It functions and looks good, but I don't really understand why every shop in the universe has them. Although they're great items, I don't. You know, I'm not liking them, but it is a bit of a weird one in the same sort of way. You kind of go, it's such a normal item. How come it's been taken beyond that? I'd just like to make a quick mention of with regards to British Rail, because I did get a message quite randomly yesterday from a friend in Tokyo who had found um, a new old stock British Rail wool overcoat complete with lapel badges in a second-hand shop in Tokyo. So clearly, sort of old British Rail gear is already finding its way around the world. And then I think if you if you were looking for like an older overcoat and you had the choice of a military one or um, one with British Rail badges on, you would probably go with a military one, wouldn't you? You know, just for the general buyer, not the um, the train enthusiast. But, but John, yeah, that that's an interesting point on barbers because I, I've, I've either had or sold or bought barbers since I was about 17, I think I got my first one. And it was purely for practical reasons. It was for going fishing uh, and to me, they've always just been something that lies in the back of the car that dogs sleep on, or um, you know, it's not it's not necessarily as much as I like all the variations. I've never really seen it as a as a fashion item, and I've, I've you know I've only bought one new one, which was when I was young, um, and it is yeah to me it's just a it's it's overwear, isn't it? It's just a protective layer to to whatever you're you're wearing if you're if you're going out for a Going out for a walk or whatever. But it's one of those things. It's, it's the perfect thing, though, because it is just perfect. It's, it's you know, it hasn't really been bettered. It's, it does what it says on the tin. Yeah. And I said I'm the same. And I wear them for. I've got, I've, I've got several knackered ones. I've been knocking around for donkey's years. That are as old as I am. I've got my one vaguely nice. I've just rewaxed Barber Norton and Sons one, which is the only one I've ever bought new. And much the same as you. I, you know, I, I rip them to shreds, destroy them get an older one, mm. move them on, buy them, because they're fairly ubiquitous. They're all over the shop. Yeah. Anyway, if you want something particularly special, then, you know, I've got a Barra from Norton Sons and I've got a old Ursula. But apart from that, which are kind of special, other than that, like I said, they are they are that my dog's sleeping and, you know, they have poo bags in the pocket. Yeah. And yeah. just the sleeves are ripped and re-sewn really badly by me in the field. And, mm. yeah, know, one in the boot of the car that the dog sleeps on. Is one of the footwell of my desk that the dog sleeps on. Yeah. So I guess the interesting thing is that you have those designs and they are purposeful, but still there are trends associated with them, right? So certain barber jackets come in and out of fashion and some of them, you know, like I remember, uh, is, it the, is it the Buford or whatever for a couple of years ago? You know, that was all the rage. But then you have like extremes, like I don't know if you guys paid attention to it when it happened, but uh, an extreme version of that was when uh, suddenly... Uh, people and so streetwear scene started to wear all the Deliveroo uniforms and the DHL stuff and all that. Did you guys? Did that? Pass I missed that? that. I missed that. I wish I'd seen it. No, people were selling it for hundreds of pounds. Mad. Jesus. All the DHL stuff. Yeah. So actual actual Deliveroo and and DHL uniforms. Yes. So one of the things was there's like prestige. At, prestige associated with getting the stuff because it's you know not anyone can get the delivery or you know, whatever <laughs> it was and i think it was sort of sparked by uh um, i forget which designer it was but someone did sort of a collab with maybe dhl or did they rip off 
DHL design. It was Vetmon or something like that. Mm-hmm. All the cool kids will probably be rolling their eyes at my explanation of this. But this is how it sort of happened. And suddenly it became a massive sort of, you know, trend. Right. I just thought there were lots more DHL drivers in Brighton than anywhere else. <laughs> I thought there were loads of people delivering stuff. <laughs> oh, man, that's crazy. I know, I did. I remember there was a thing um, with extra large sort of odd logos. I don't know if that was all linked into that, where you would get, um, like, did Tommy Hill figure not sort of come back in a big way with massive logos on, on everything? Um, and, and that gear was kind of selling for big prices. Or did that happen in my imagination? I can't remember. Have I spent too much time on eBay? But there was a thing where, like, anything that had a huge logo, especially a sweatshirt, um, tended to, to sort of go for big, big money. Um, and That was definitely a thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And again, I suppose, I don't know if that was all linked in with that, but um, I think, but I don't, I don't know, like, you know, I'm constantly going. Oh, I don't understand that trend. I don't understand the trend, but I don't think I'm supposed to because I'm 49. You know, I don't. I don't think I understand that these things are not aimed at me. Therefore, um, you know, I don't like. I can have a a 20-minute conversation with my son about his Minecraft, but I I I don't know really what he's talking about. But he does, and he's keen on it, so that's fine and that's good. But you know. Um, it's a, I think maybe with things like that, it is generational. Well, it's by definition, isn't it, Sean? I think it's like, if you understood any of it, then it wouldn't be cool by definition. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it's like the pendulum has to swing so far the other way for it to be interesting. Yeah. So it has to be off your map for it to be onto theirs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I sort of fully don't expect them to, to understand maybe what I was into um, as a teenager or as a, in my twenties, you know that whatever whatever was the, the trend at the time, you know I don't expect that that they'll understand what that was all about or um, how it came about and how that felt or whatever. And, and as you say, that's that's just that's just life, isn't it? It's just um, it's it's just a generational thing of of, uh, of of trends. You know, trends come and go, don't they? By the very nature. Is it any different in terms of the vintage stuff uh, when things become vintage? Because do trends within those areas at least uh, become a little bit more subtle or sort of last a bit longer? So when we get into sort of the heritage clothes and all that sort of stuff, within that, has have trends sort of persisted for longer? And so they're almost not trends because we begin to call those things style, don't we? But mm. is that a bunch of nonsense or is that true? What do you guys I think? think? I think that's true. I think the style, sort of early part of this century, I guess the, the pre-pop culture stuff, so the 50s when pop culture and the 60s when brands and things were kicking off, there was a whole look pre that up until so 1900 to 1950. That seems to stick as vintage style, the golden age of Hollywood, the Second World War militaria, you know, that as a whole traditional, that's become the new traditional, the new go-to in the way men look and that seems to be the core focus on vintage and i think lots of people who've been traditionally into vintage and i see it a lot on the forums are now getting very upset that the 80s and 90s and even the 70s are classed as vintage and 
people who are you know 20 30 years younger than me in their in their in their, in their you know teens and 20s are now wearing the stuff that we were wearing as kids and it's that that, that you know i think there's that generational shift and whether lots of them still see that golden age of vintage as vintage but they also take in more stuff that was within my lifetime as vintage mm-hmm. does that make sense mm-hmm. i think there's definitely a golden age what people perceive as vintage and there are I can name 40 or 50 brands probably off the top of my head that sell to that aesthetic. Yeah. I can't think of any brands that sell to an aesthetic of the 70s, really the 60s or the 80s, those those three decades, nobody's... But, you know, from 50s back to 1900, there are so many companies that do repros, retro, that look, that style, and it's still selling. So I'm guessing that's the core market. Yeah. Yeah, there is there are a number of brands out there that that sell that style of um clothing at very high prices, you know, very well made, blah blah blah. Um, you know, sort of higher peg trousers and, and fair isle knitwear and, and that kind of thing. I think Oldfield is it Oldfield? Um are one of them that seem to really very much specify on modern versions of, of, of vintage styles, you know, um, that, you know, okay, there's, I think if you were to wear sort of everything from them, it would be almost like it's that fine line between um, wearing some vintage clothing and um, and dressing up, you know, so it's more of a, a dressing up thing rather than, um, you know, taking elements of, of, this is something we've discussed in the past, Nick, where, you know, it's like what then becomes like you wearing costume or uh, cosplay or whatever it's called. But, you know, there's an element of like a fine line between wearing some items that would be of a specific era and vintage or being, you know, wearing absolutely everything from that era. People who sort of do live in the 1930s, they have a 1930s house and they have a, mm. well, if they have a car. Everything is sort of like that, which is a sort of pretty advanced cosplay, but it's not really realistic and it's not actually related to a style or vintage style thing, is it? I'll put that down to mental health. True. <laughs> I mean, seriously, if you, if you have, and I've seen those people, but you know, the people who insist on not having a laptop doing all this stuff. And you know, going out, they want an outdoor toilet and all this sort of stuff. Like that, that's just a bit too much. I've dealt in vintage for a long time. I know those people, and they are, <laughs> yeah, they're they're, they're they're a law unto themselves. And it's kind of literally stitch counting. And I've had arguments. I've I've got one of my grandfather's old suits, which he had made as a demobbing suit. Uh-huh. They argued with me for hours, and it couldn't have been a suit done on rations because it's got um, turnips. Nobody had turnips then, turnips. You know, you couldn't afford the fabric. And I'm like, this literally my granddad's suit. It's got his name in it and the date it was made. It's like, no, no, it's the Marks and Spencer suit. It's not, it's, the suits haven't changed. It, it's just a suit that looks like a Marks and Spencer suit, but it was made in 1946. I have my grandfather's from 1945. Yeah, my granddad's probably slightly on the backhand of being a farmer. He probably got some extra ration cards to get that bit of extra fabric. But it's kind of like, you've, you've taken it to the extreme of stitch counting uh, and your idea of that. And I think there's a, there's a big blurred line between the living history, the, the crazies that live actually stuck in that time, people that are generally interested in it, people that collect the vintage, and they all blur together. And, you know, as Sean was saying, I wear quite a bit of vintage 
but I tend to wear it as a piece of clothing with an outfit as opposed to dress doing complete dress up. Yeah. And vintage events, I do do complete dress up. And, you know, for things like Goodwood, I do very nicely and tend to win men's best dress and that sort of thing, which is lovely because I've got a lot of vintage gear. Mm-hmm. But I would, wouldn't would go down to, you know, Waitrose to do my shopping in a full 1950s Arctic convoy outfit. Yeah. But I know people that would. In, in your 1950s car? Yeah, in my 1950s car, you know, and then I would pay with, you know, I'd try to pay with some, uh, you know, sovereigns and throttly bits and yeah. stuff because I actually want to use a credit card because it's not. Green shield stamps. Yes, here's some green shield stamps. Can you take those in there? It's an interesting, and it, it has, you know, it is the dominant style for vintage. And as you were saying, that you know, the guys that make really close proximities of it, which are really high-end and very expensive, and it goes down to like Old Town, Old Field, um, Stanley Biggs. There's, there's, there, there are so many com- companies in the UK now that do a version of that. It's um yeah, it's a really weird niche that obviously is very popular. You know, there's um the suit people, um Thomas Farthing, the kind of you know, um Peaky Blinders thing going on, which is you know, which wasn't even historic. That was a historic take on a TV show that's now turned into what actually was history and it's almost a self fulfilling prophecy. It's not actually what they wore. Right. It's what a TV a TV executive thought they should have worn, and now people are saying that is what actually happened. It's almost come full circle. It's very odd. It, it's not a programme I ever watched, but I, I realise, yeah, it did, did seem to have quite a big um, influence on on what a lot of people wore, didn't it? It's certainly done wonders for the sales of tweed caps. Yes. Yeah. So this is the thing, though, isn't it? It's just the, sort of the hardcore minority that sits uh, <laughs> within this sort of world judges everyone else if they make even, you know, a slight step outside the circle. But the reality is, is that, you know, things have to progress at, okay. at some level, you know, at some pace. Mm-hmm. And none of us would be very happy if all we ever did is just replaced every single item as it as we have currently with just a newer version of it eventually when it tears apart. Mm-hmm. Like, we do want to, so, you know, explore a little bit, right? And then... But that's this is the thing is that yeah there's that natural um, tension within that sort of vintage world about whether or not you can do that and how much of it you can do. Mm-hmm. This is also the downside of uh, the sustainability drive, where you have to buy better things now and buy fewer things, and only replace what wears out and uh, what well only what you really really need. Which I mean, much as I'm for the environment and I really am honest i do like buying stuff i think most people do yeah i i don't i, I don't get a thrill out of, of buying new things though i think I've, I've i'm way beyond that now um you get a thrill out of buying old things don't you so it's the same thing but just different <laughs> we're buying old things i get angry with we're buying things that are misdescribed or things that are you know, described in a certain way and they, and they arrive and they're clearly not. But the more you do it, the less chance of that happening, the more um, the sort of worldwide you get with these things, you know, especially just using eBay alone as a forum. But, um, but yeah, I think um, what what you're saying is, like, yeah, we like, we like that there's no point, we, we wouldn't all be here if we didn't like buying things. It's just about, how, how do you want your buying experience to be? Um, you know, 
Um, and for me, probably more specifically for me, the, the, the idea of walking around shops and looking around shops, not, not that there are any shops open here at the moment due to level four lockdown, but um, that whole process for me became unattractive and, and unenjoyable. Um, you know, a good a good few years ago, but um, can I ask, was that enjoyment because shops had absolutely nothing you wanted, or was it just the fact that it's full of the public who are pretty awful? I think having spent a lifetime working in and around shops as well, John, that it lost it lost a kind of bit of a shine for me when you see it from the other side. You know, um, it it took took the edge off it, and I think. Yeah, the, the process of it as well. So the process of of um, the the whole sale and and full price cycle, the um, shops not having the right size, unstandardised sizing, um, really crappy quality stuff that's getting people are charging a fortune for. Just the whole, I think the whole process, and and I think buying online and buying secondhand began to appeal to me more and more and that I could see that I could get a bargain. I could see that I could um, have the whole marketplace in front of me and um, that kind of thing. And I think, yeah, yeah. So a, a lot of it started um, because I saw the business perhaps from the other side um, and saw the waste and saw the, um, the sheer volume of, of stock that gets moved about and how it's just a product, you know, it's 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 just a means to an end. Um, you know, I, I just got a, got a bit sickened with it, I think, um, and I think it's better for me to stay out of stores. I just I don't enjoy it. No, because I, I love I love buying stuff, and there's no, you know my collection of clothing across the board is. Um, I I I would I could probably check wear my, a different outfit every day for the year and repeat forever, and nothing's ever to walk out, and I never need to buy anything new again. But I like buying things, yeah. like having and the experience of it. I hate going to shops. Uh-huh. If I go, unless I'm going to a very major city like London, because there's stuff to do and stuff to look around. Brighton, to a certain degree, because it's local to me. My local town, Horsham, I walk around and there is literally nothing in the entire town that I want to buy. Yeah, there's nothing there for me. There's no experience. There's no, no product clothing-wise that I would buy. And there's a few shops, I would buy a sandwich, buy a coffee. But I literally, and you know, there's, there's a couple of men's clothing stops, nothing in there is appealing to me. Yeah. There's a couple of stops, nothing. The charity shops occasionally have something in. Mm. Stores, I, I, I find it, you know, because of lockdown, I haven't left the house much. Yeah. And like my, my two or three trops, trips this year into cities have been massively underwhelming because there's been nothing there and i've just gone wow what a lot of rubbish mm-hmm. what about vintage shops what do you what do you think of vintage shops then because it sounds like the sorts of things that maybe annoy you about regular shops wouldn't wouldn't be as uh, bad in vintage shops oh, possibly not so much in vintage shops because there is the element of searching and finding something interesting the problem i find with vintage shops is one the size is because i'm of a you know i was built in the 1970s i am not built for a framework of wearing vintage clothing because they're all tiny um it's good for an experience good to see stuff good to handle different fabrics but they're either incredibly expensive or there's nothing in it that will fit me and that is a bit of a killer you know i love going to the vintage showroom in london it's got some great bits and pieces 
the, the stuff in there that fits me, I can't afford. The stuff that I would wear is tiny. So you kind of go, it's frustrating, but it's more, you know, an interest to see something different. More like visiting museum than actually shopping, possibly. Mm. I think part of this is also that after a while, shopping becomes more of a sport, maybe, mm. where it's the thrill of the hunt, uh, finding a new rabbit hole to go down, <laughs> sort of finding something online that was made, released 10 years ago and sold out immediately, and you find it finally in the size you need. I mean, that's sort of... It's a, it's a more active process. I mean, I'm I'm bored to tears by going into shops and I'll see that, oh, they've got that, yeah. Oh, they've got a full range of sizes. Yeah, that's good. Um, maybe if it's on sale, it would be more tempting. Uh, there's a psychological aspect there. But just the fact that it's so available makes it a lot less interesting. But finding something online, say, on a Japanese auction site <laughs> that I thought was gone forever... Uh, and my teeth will literally be perspiring. Hmm. You're now talking about my rabbit holes, aren't you, Nick? And I'm, I'm, I apologise for going down them, and I do go down them in a bigger way and try to find really obscure stuff for little reason. John Moore Shoes, for example, this last couple of months um, has been a rabbit hole I've gone down. I found some in Russia. I bought them. They haven't been made since the late 80s. But, um, yeah, the, the, the thrill of the hunt is quite, quite appealing, let's say. And I mean, most people, I mean, not. I don't even know what John Moore shoes are. I mean, from the 80s? Um, John, John Moore was a post-punk fashion designer. There was a slight fashion movement mid to late 80s towards a, I guess, an English aesthetic of craft that came post-punk, still with a sort of ethos of kind of the, I guess, more... More design-led and idealistic than what came after it and possibly what came before it. It was a very small window because all the designers seemed to die of heroin and coke overdoses in the late 80s. So that John Moore, for example, he's, he's a goner. Um, but he, he made fabulous shoes. He was trained classically as a cobbler in the sort of Northampton factories of, of Wonderman and his shoes are made amazingly. The designs of them are near unwearable, possibly, in a, in a classic sense. They look utterly bizarre, um, but that just appealed to me. He's got something called a hog-toed shoe, which is out of a square toe. It literally is it's like a block. I can't really describe it. It's like a trotter. Um, and I became slightly fascinated with both the production of those because they're produced in Nottingham in a very you know classic shoe manufacturing way. Um, they're made very well in England, all the things I kind of like. They haven't been made for decades. So they became quite a uh, quite a thing to find. Um, Most important point of all is that you can only find them on some obscure site in Russia. And I've and, and I've, I spent a lot of time tracking down different places that might have them. And apparently, some chap from Russia bought a pair in the eighties and took them home with him. And um, I found them at an auction site in Russia and obviously bought them straight away without asking any questions. And they're currently winging their way from Belarus to me now. So is that is that your only pair of them, John? Do, do you have any other ones? That will be my first pair. I, I wanted to test the water with the most bonkers thing I could find. But, right, okay. But you know, I, was, I was just kind of fascinated. There was there was this whole really design-led ethos in London and an aesthetic that was sort of building and bubbling away before, as I may have mentioned, Britpop sort of swiped yeah. it out and destroyed it completely. But it was, it was very design-led and, and very intellectual design. Yeah. And I'm about how, how far can we push the norms of design and manufacturing? Mm-hmm. And that 
was just really interesting to me and that you know and i you know i was looking at these shoes and i was looking at leather goods anyway and i've you know recently bought a rucksack from a man in russia who lives on a horse farm in the hills and makes two rucksacks a year and that led me on to peterson stoop the a new um dutch guy who gets old streetwear trainers and wax traditional leather soles on them and i i it was a whole rabbit hole that I, I probably went a little bit nuts on because I'm locked in a small house in the countryside not being able to go anywhere and just thought what a brilliant thing to research and look up on the internet and spend hours doing what I should be doing something more constructive yeah and and do you, would you include the whole um, sort of buffalo style from the late 80s would you include that in, in what you were talking about there about a more design led yeah, I think so. I think I think there was a from the the punk onward, the sort of the early eighties towards the late eighties. Late eighties was a real melting pot of actual very clever design, uh-huh. where people were actually designers that went to architectural college yeah. or proper traditional colleges of design and art, and and were making things that were pushing the boundaries of what was technically possible. Mm-hmm. And it was quite clever and 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 very well thought out, and it you know sometimes may come across as a bit you know GCSE A-level art student oh my god I'm doing this because it's a great idea and it's conceptual uh-huh. but they were pushing some boundaries and they, you know they came up with some great things and then yeah all of a sudden there seemed to be this big Britpop thing seemed to just completely crush that completely yeah and then that, the big streetwear brands in the UK appeared almost overnight seemingly from like skateboard brands and, and surfing brands yeah and and then all these sort of design-led little companies that had one shop somewhere in London that had, you know, five or ten proper customers just disappeared completely. And as I said, all the design faded into insecurity or worked off to go and do, you know, become art teachers or died of heroin overdoses mm-hmm. to just disappear. And but there, there seemed to be this this movement, you know, I guess Vivian Westwood and her son and things kept going to a certain degree. But yeah, it was it was lost, I think. Mm-hmm. And then it's I think it's now starting to be found. 20, 30 years later, so my good friend Paul Harden and stuff like that is taking a bit of that ethos on, but maybe not in the same way. But there was a, there's been a gap in proper design, I think. Yeah. This is Paul Harden, your friend who won't admit he's Paul Harden. That is the man. If you meet him, he will say he's not himself because he doesn't want people to talk to him. He's very close, close. close personal friend. Yeah, though. no, he, he didn't. Yeah, he's run away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm interesting thing about this is that we again the, the, the sort of the definition of what some of, of a certain period you know just sort of develops over time but it's just i was wondering the the whole thing about the definition of what a certain period uh looks like you know is only constructed later and you know if i say a 70 shirt we all know what i'm probably what i probably mean by that but um that's probably because certain things became a dominant thing uh, in the way that we sort of look back on it. But, you know, if you said the eighties and all these things that were happening in the eighties, you know, that's not what I associate with that period at all. No, not at all. That's what I mean. It's been, it's been wiped out by more dominant culture, which is a shame because there were some really good things happening and it happens as you rightly say for everything, you know, there was some great design in the seventies and great design in, in the sixties, which, mm-hmm. was, you know, we, th- you know, we talk about the 60s, people always talk about the summer of love and the hippies. It was like one year, and that was 68, 69, maybe. Mm. Other than that, a lot of other stuff happened in the 60s, but everybody just thinks of, you know, Woodstock. There was a lot more to Woodstock. 
you know, the eighties, it's either punks or sort of fluorescent. I think, yeah, there's, I think there's so many lazy, lazy cliches around every decade and can like, it, it's as if it, it started and ended. So when you say like the eighties, right, the eighties, probably what, People's conception of the eighties is Duran Duran, uh, red braces, a Porsche, um, big mobile phones. Do you know what I mean? So they they run the same clips on on the telly every time to say right, you know, oh this is the eighties, you know. Um, and if it's the nineties, they'll show the Happy Mondays or or a rave or something. But for me, the eighties was was raves yeah so that was the 80s for me not the 90s um i didn't have a mobile phone i didn't have a porsche so i can't relate to that um you know so for me it was about buying secondhand clothes and raves and going to discos you know yeah no just normal number three i think was my preferred haircut at the time or number four or whatever all over but what yeah but I think what John's saying as well is it's not about you, you can't just take a, say it's a decade when there's like they're, they're just really talking about one or two events within that decade as such um, The other thing about it is that it really depends on what country you're talking about because again you know the, the styles and experiences in different countries are completely different so maybe that's why those shoes are really kicking off in Belarusia right now and that John can find them there but nowhere else I think, it's, I think it's definitely. I think that's probably changed a bit with the internet, but I think definitely up until the sort of really mass media culture, there, there were distinct differences. I remember going on like a a school ski trip in the very early nineteen nineties, and I was wearing a leather jacket and a Faith No More t shirt, and I blew the minds of some Italian students. They thought that was the coolest thing they'd ever seen in their life, and they all had rucksacks on both shoulders and big trainers, and it, it was kind of. Yeah, it was it was an interesting thing. Hmm. I know where I grew up. Um, everything came about at least a year after it had been popular other places. So it was kind of a delayed fashion reaction. Did that just mean that you were really cool, Nick? Because you just stayed ahead of the curve and you knew exactly what was coming up. I was sort of retro before it was acknowledged as retro. So either I was a year behind fashion or nine years ahead of it. <laughs> Something like that. Does en- does does anyone have like a sort of favourite um, look or favourite sort of fashion style from that period? So you know when you think back to how you were dressing yourself in the late eighties, the early nineties, through the nineties, did you, did you adopt any of those trends? Was there any of those trends that you kind of went you know whether it was like Britpop or um, baggy style or you know, paninaro or casual or mod. Was there anything that that anybody went all in on and and particularly adopted, or did you kind of stay above it? I remember one of those styles, which I thought was just so incredibly cool and, in all probability, way too cool for me, so I never actually tried it. But visiting London in the mid-'80s after reading Enemy and the Melody Maker and seeing the guys around, uh, probably around Camden Lock or Notting Hill, wearing their MA1s with dead sharp haircuts, jeans. I can't remember the shoes that are used, but I think it was a sort of bomb culture look, and I thought they were awesome, which is not a word I 
use lightly. So, yeah. So what you're talking about is is what was then classed as a sort of buffalo aesthetic, the whole uh, Ray Petrie-styled um, MA1s. The shoes were generally Dr. Martens, but with steel toe caps or a wider toe. Um, jeans were like sort of Levi's, um, quite roomy 501s rolled up. Um often sort of matched with a black roll neck or a, uh, a shirt and tie under the MA1, uh, like a colourful tie or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. And that, that was one that I sort of adopted by the late 80s uh, myself and kind of stuck with that. Yeah, that was that was very much. What about anybody else? Did anybody else kind of go all in on a, a trend? I was long hair, leather jacket, grunge. You know, I thought I was a cross between Kurt Cobain and Jim Morrison. I thought I was the dog's danglies, sort of shoulder-length hair, my biker jacket. I, I I look back at photographs now and just think, my God, what was I doing? But I thought I looked at these news. And it wasn't until the late 90s when I went to university and realised if I sh- sh- shore my hair off and stopped looking like I was a you know, a roadie, I'd get laid. So mm-hmm. I got my hair cut off and then started wearing a bit of streetwear. And got really into Maharishi and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Mixed with some people, got my eyes opened. And that was kind of, I think, when I left university, mid to late 90s, early 2000s, probably when I actually started getting interested in fashion and clothes in a, in a bigger way other than I'm this subcultural group and I dress this way because this is what my friends do and we want to do a certain way. Yeah. And then it kind of sprung off from there. Yeah. But I definitely did the whole rock and roll, grunge, heavy metal thing for you know, most of my teens. Yeah. And fairly stinky and un- unattractive. <laughs> well, that's basically what the dog's danglies are. Yeah. <laughs> now that we all have dogs and know what they look like. <laughs> so, Jackie, where are you? Mm, I, I sort of went the wrong way. I started off relatively well and then sort of faded into something that I deeply regret. Um, so... I, uh, when I was sort of in my early teens, I was wearing sort of peg trousers and tried to look like sort of, uh, the sort of people you'd see on old jazz, uh, sort of albums. Cause I thought that that looked really cool when I saw my granddad's sort of, um, album collection. So if, if I kept to that, I'll be quite happy. Uh, but then eventually I faded into sort of, um, FUBU and skater clothes in the sort of, uh, early multi sort of late 90s and wore sort of massively oversized stuff also because I play basketball and stuff so you know I had, I had to go with the full thing <laughs> and so I, I looked like a really really bad imitation of I don't know P. Diddy or Jay-Z or something like that ouch <laughs> I thought that was forever we did mention Britpop and how that killed off a lot of the sort of British um, design industry what styles did Britpop introduce to the British scene? Uh, for, for me, there's a lot of the styles that people my age still wear today. And I think its its influences kind of run wide. And I think the whole Stone Roses, Stroke Happy Mondays kind of look and um, I'm going to use the word vibe – um, seems to run true still today, um, whether it's like um, high-end sportswear, um, as we've touched on before. Um, you know, I think 
back in the day, people our age wouldn't have necessarily worn, um, still worn sportswear and trainers, but now they do because it's it's they've people have kind of taken that fashion style and fashion sense on then in the sort of mid nineties, and they've just stuck with it um, and they've stayed with it, you know, and um, I think like trainers that kind of Adidas Gazelle, um, Kagul, Kangol hat type of thing, you know. It largely passed me by. It wasn't a music scene or style that I, I really had anything to do with, but I could see that it was um, influence. And I think, I think we've got that to thank for the predominance of people wearing sportswear now rather than, um, you know, anything else like an easier thing to wear isn't it yeah the brit pop thing you know it was obviously heavily influenced by like uh i guess skinheads and mods and football casuals that sort of looks sort of amalgamated with the manchester baggy stuff and they it is it's kind of that sportswear dressing down thing that made it just a lot e- a lot sloppier and a lot easier and i think that because it's so easy, as Sean was saying, people can wear sportswear whatever they want now, and you know, it's kind of normal. And there are lots of men my age in their forties that now knock around in trainers and tracksuits all the time. They're not working, and very often when they are working, I think that was kicked off probably with them. And you know, the people emulating—you either went one way, the other. You either went, you know, full Damon Arborn or full uh, Gallagher. And the Gallagher thing seems to have kept going a bit more than the other one. And there were still lots of people I see knocking around that look like Liam Gallagher from 1997. So because I, I didn't grow up in the in in, in the UK, um, so, so as a sort of a foreigner looking in, I have a question. It, was that sort of a reaction to the previous generation being very formal? Or was it completely like just at random that, you know, whatever Oasis wore suddenly became a thing? Or... I think it was. I think it was a continuum. So I think you know, from the fifties onwards, people have got more casual in their clothing, and there were movements in the eighties. We've touched on a couple of them that then got amalgamated almost into what was Cool Britannia and what was sold to the rest of the world, and then taken on as a very dominant Britpop style and culture from you know the early nineties to the you know probably early two thousands, where. You looked. I men tended to look one of two ways. You either look like Liam Gallagher or you look like Damon Albarn, and that was there was nothing in between. And to be fair, both styles are very relaxed, very sloppy. You know, lots of Adidas three stripes going on, lots of flower uh, hats, lots of ghouls, lots of hoodies, and it still obviously is a pretty big influence on men's clothing now. And you know, the Gallaghers have got their own menswear label whether it's still going on i can't remember pretty green and that basically just emulates what he's wearing in the 90s continuing you know there, there was a interesting yeah it was an interesting it was a, it was kind of a great time for being british and being in the arts particularly because everybody's throwing money at it because britain was seen as being this centrifuge Ooh. thing it was cool yeah being british was amazing i went to south africa during this time period and i was adorned and worshipped as some sort of deity for a bit because i came from england um, they then spoke to me and realised I was a bit of a wanker. But, um, but yeah, 
it was kind of it was it was a weird old time. So lots of thing lots of things got money thrown at them in the arts, and but it just seemed to be a void of creativity. The lad culture thing, loaded magazine. You know, it was kind of lowest common denominator. It was just drinking as much beer as you can, taking as many drugs as you can, and telling people you're brilliant. And if you did that, then by default you were brilliant, and everything else got pushed to the sides, possibly. Yeah, I've, I've read so retrospectively. I've read that they're saying oh, it was a, a kickback against the the grunge thing in the early nineties, but I think that's an easy thing to say retrospectively, isn't it? I don't know if that at the time was necessarily the case, you know, because you still had people that were that were sort of into that scene and, and the grunge thing right through Britpop, but. Yeah, it, it it was almost like looking back to the 60s and it was, you know, I think 66 was seen as a kind of touch point where it was all about um, being into football and, um, you know, as I say, being a bit of a lad and, and uh, you know, sort of embracing that side of things, you know, where um, there was a kind of rise of the new man in the late 80s and early 90s and then that was all swept away by... The new lad. Um, there was essays in Arena Magazine at the time. Um, a guy called Sean O'Hagan, I think his name was, the, the writer that sort of encapsulated it in, a, in an article in the early nineties about a new lad. Um, this this new lad thing, but I think that was just taken with as as an excuse for uh, sort of crappy behaviour, really, a lot of the time. And um, you know, there was an element of mod style, but it. It was kind of, I don't know. It was like they took some elements of the mod style, but did their own thing, you know. So like you would have never got a, a mod in the sixties wearing trainers, but um, you know the, the the gazelle trainer seemed to be, and the Fred Perry T-shirt. They, these things seemed to kind of uh, bring it. So if you wore that, you were okay. You know that was that was seen as like sort of fashionable and stuff at the time, eh? but. Uh, I don't know. It was, as, as John said, it was just a bit horrible. Sort of looking back on it now, you know. Um, you you say looking like, back, but it feels like it's still very much here, you know. True. Yeah. Because it kind of reminds me of a story that well, so when I worked in um, uh, worked in retail for for a bit, but then I had a colleague that looked at this uh, older gentleman that was wearing a suit, and he he was just saying like. You know, I don't care how old I get, I'm never going to start wearing a suit. And the, the, my, my thing was sort of like, I immediately realized that he thought at some point you get old and then you start wearing suits. But, but of course, the, the, the thing is that, you know, you, you, if, if you're the sort of person that continues to wear whatever you wear, then you eventually become the old person. And then there's a group of people that look like you. And then old people tend to look, you know, your generation starts looking a certain way and then everyone goes oh i don't care how old i get i'm never gonna start wearing a hoodie you know so like he and he missed that point and so that's the thing for me with this sort of culture is the people that hold on to this for so much eventually they'll you know they'll just get older and then everyone that's a certain age will just start looking like that and it feels very much like uh that that's gonna happen with especially that generation because they're like one of the most committed uh of the bunch that i've sort of come across mm. Mm. the lad culture itself that must have run into some problems when it met the me too culture 
I think I think I think we look you know I look back now and the stuff that was happening in the nineties with men's culture as a whole, and it's kind of like the equivalent of putting the black and white minstrel show on BBC now. It's so politically incorrect, and people you know I, I people have kind of ignored it all happened, and I don't because it was horrendously unpleasant. I guess, and 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 you know, I, Me Too has taken the forefront and probably wiped it out completely. But it was just drinking and misogyny at full volume for a decade, if not a little bit more. Right, as as a young as a young man, it was perfect for me. But you know, everybody else probably. I remember on some um, music awards show, and there was one of the Gallicers went on stage. And when he got his award, then spat out some lager or something. And you kind of think, like, you're a grown man. You know, surely people could see then that that was just stupid and childish. But it was it was, it was, was celebrated and, and it was like, yeah, this is so cool. But it's like, it might have been cool when you were like seven years old. But, you know, it's not cool now. It's not cool as a grown up. And they were all cheering and, and, and I just, oh, God, no. I don't, I don't, I don't quite know where that's gone. That, that that whole acting men behaving badly bit has disappeared from culture, as far as I can tell. Maybe it's I'm older and I don't see people doing that anymore. But it seemed to die off. Luckily, I hope it has. I I don't know though. I mean, it's difficult. I'm in a little bubble here in a nice area and got nice neighbours, and I don't I don't maybe see that aspect of it, but. I don't know. Maybe it does. I'd... Maybe it is still out there. It's just not as. Uh... We've got now generation sensible now. We've got teenagers don't go out and get drunk in the park anymore. They they sit at home and FaceTime each other and flash their boobs to each other. And you know, teenage pregnancy's gone down. Drug use in teenagers has gone down. And it's now, you know, I was looking at the stats. I work with the NHS. Um, for death rates and sort of teenage death rates through drugs and stuff have gone down dramatically over the last decade. Right. The death rate for men over 40 has gone up almost the same. Hmm. All these men hit 40, have their 40th birthday party, and think it's the 90s. Yeah. Why do all the drugs they used to do then and they give themselves coronaries? So, you know, <laughs> I think society has changed so what? Teenagers don't go out and get drunk in the park, so girls don't get pregnant like they used to. And there aren't the fights they used to be with young young people. So, the, you know, that's almost a positive of social media and connectivity and that they're not having to go out en masse and have drunken brawls on a Friday night, which is kind of sad. I kind of, I'd, I'd love doing that when I was a teenager. But, uh. but my question um, is, are the people who are having the heart attacks, do they still look cool? In which case I think it's fine. I, I, <laughs> I, I imagine they look like sweaty old men. I imagine they'd look like me, just, just horrendous red faced, Men in suits dying on dance floors in nightclubs up and down the country. Mm. It's not going to be pretty. Oh, I think they're still wearing baggy jeans with wedge haircuts and uh, Stone Roses t-shirts. There could, there could still be a few of those. I'm pretty sure there will be. Yeah. A, a few years ago now, um, there was a, a Stone Roses concert in Glasgow um, one summer, and I was in, in the city centre with my son at the time, who would have been about... I don't know, seven or eight then, and it was just me and him. And it was honestly, it was like stepping back in time. The, the, the Glasgow was just full of um, men in their 40s walking about in Kangol bucket hats and 
walking with their arms swinging around like some sort of you know they were actually adopting the walk as well yeah. and it was hilarious you know and there's all these men that probably held down regular jobs had families and children that had, were walking along the streets swigging lager and swinging their arms about with with the, the brand new trainers on that they've got just for the event and uh you know to to go and see the, the stone roses and oh it was just like god almighty you know it was quite sickening really um maybe that's just me being a snob but uh, it sounds like it was a sort of cosplay scene for the, the sort of uh, Manchester music. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, I think that was that was kind of the aesthetic that they were going for. But um, oh, I don't, I don't know. It's just it was just awful. It was just like it was just almost like an excuse for bad behaviour, you know. Uh, just like dropping stuff in the street and things, and you just think, would you would you do that normally, or are you just adopting this persona? Um, because that's what goes with the music kind of thing. So kind of like the guy that lives in the 1930s house and insists on doing it properly, then it's sort of the equivalent to that, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He's probably got a, um, instead of having an Austin 7 outside, he's probably got, what, a uh, Subaru... Um, WRX or whatever, you know. It's got like a proper 90s motor as well, you know. There's kind of magazines dedicated to, to that as well. Uh, you know, the, the sort of revival of um, affordable sort of 90s cars that, you know, they might not have been able to afford at the time when they were late teens, early 20s. Um, cars that they coveted then. But um, again, that's just an extension of that nostalgic culture, isn't it? Where, um, you know... They can now maybe afford a a, a faster BMW, an older one, or whatever. And they, um, you know, that's just a, another aspect of it. I think. Um, yeah. Is it all kind of all style on hanging on some cultural ethos of some description, whether you're a football casual or whether you're dressing in 1940s gear or whether you're dressing like a member of the Stone Roses? It's all about your subcultural group or you know trying to show something so honestly you're either affluent or you're part of a group or is that not kind of how menswear clothing works to a certain degree it's all a uniform to show who you are and what you do mm. yeah yeah i think there's um a sort of a, a real movement um towards luxury so, I mean, I know advertising is aspirational, et cetera, et cetera, but there seems to be more of a a move up market now. So nothing can be just standard, can it? You know, um, anything standard is, is 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 deemed sort of inappropriate. Where you know it has to be uh, luxury advert. So you're you're selling a lifestyle. Um, I think. You know, there's magazines kind of dedicated to that um, luxury kind of aspect of, of life where it's all, you know, nobody drinks a pint anymore. It's all like uh, cocktails and, and uh, you know, it's it's not Benson Hedges, it's it's fine cigars and stuff as if that suddenly makes it okay that, um, you know, you, 
you're still smoking, but you're you're smoking a forty quid cigar. I don't know what cigars are, but you know a forty pound cigar every evening, or uh, you know lit lit by a um, special match that you import specially from Siberia or whatever. I don't know. Um, Aspirational, and you know, how, however you aspire to it, there's you know, everybody buys things on aspiration and, and wanting to be either a part of something, but yeah, there does seem to be a lot of male advertising about you know, having a vintage sports car, a massive house, a leggy blonde, whilst you're smoking a huge cigar in an Italian made suit with shoes that have been made by elves in the Peruvian hills out of the back of a once sought after roebuck deer that was shot majestically by your yeah no i i it's a weird it's a weird cultural phenomenon and it's one that drives me a little bit spare because it's just made up for people who've got no taste and no idea to buy really expensive gear yeah yeah it's 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 look at this this is a brand if you buy into this brand if you wear that you, you don't have to worry you know it's like you'll be seen as um some sort of cultural icon um if if you if you buy into this particular uh lifestyle as such you know um wait so are we saying all this is a lie have i just wasted all my money yeah sorry <laughs> it is all a lie it's all a lie what what i wonder about is do these people actually exist or is it all just male models and people are aspiring to be like they see the male models in the magazines. Well, they definitely the exist. <laughs> Do they? They might. Yes, I, I see pictures of them all the time. On Instagram. You see pictures like... of them, not real people. It's models. It's all made up. I I don't know any of them. I certainly don't. Well, you know, I know. No, I don't know anybody who owns a stately home and has a leggy blonde and a selection of sports cars. And Patrick like... Grant is a good sort of approximation of that. Yeah, actually, Patrick, he's. He, Yes, he's an interesting one, actually. Yeah. I think he might Does be he the perfect person. Blocked? Are we now going to talk about our collective man crush on Patrick Grant? We all love Patrick Grant. <laughs> we should do an entire episode just dedicated to that. <laughs> the thing is, though, he, you know, traditionally, he's not a fashion designer. He's not really in fashion. He was an ad, ad exec who made some money and bought a Savile Row Taylor's course. He, Nick, how do you kick what, people off the hope. call? Is that... I just, Pardon? I said, how do you kick people off the call? Uh, I feel like that's blasphemy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Right. No, I, I love him, and he's done some great stuff, and he's done some amazing things for the men's fashion industry, and he's got factories. But you just kind of go, he's not... You know, he's a, he's become a fashion icon, but he's not a designer. He, he's got a great eye for clothes, by all means, and he's a good-looking guy, and... He has a wonderful lifestyle, and I kind of wish I was him. But you kind of go, you just got bored of being an advertising exec and bought a Savile Row Taylor's, and now you've become... So so really, this is all based on jealousy. <laughs> it is all based on jealousy. <laughs> I think what he's doing with the community clothing, I think that's it's very admirable, and it's good, you know, and it's reasonably priced and UK-made and stuff. But beyond that, I, I don't really get it. I don't get the appeal. Um, you know, as I say, he, he dresses smart enough, but there's lots of folk dressed smart enough. You know, um, 
it's not really about dressing smart enough, though, because Patrick Grant has transcended uh, uh, being a, a clothes guy, uh, being a factory owner, being a brand owner. I mean, he's a he's a celebrity now after how many seasons of the sewing bee where he basically gets to promote Patrick Grant every week for an hour. So I think it's wrong to look at him as a not being a clothes designer or not being something or being something else. Or I mean, he is actually a celebrity these days. Mm. A celebrity hunk. I, I know what you mean. It's 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 like it's this whole aesthetic of of a lifestyle that were that people have been sold and and you're right like do the a do these people exist who buys into it so is it is it high net worth individuals that can afford then to to buy this stuff and as john says is it is it people that have no taste that i just think well I'm, that looks okay so i'll buy that and and that'll that's that's a decision made for me you know i don't well, I think, think about I think wearing there are people out there with a lot of money and not a lot of taste. And if they're sold, this is the way to be tasteful and, you know, a high net worth individual, as you put it. You know, this it's an easy thing to do, isn't it? It's kind of like, I'll go to the Rake website and I'll buy myself that tweed blazer and that £200 pair of jeans. And I spent like two or £3,000 on this very average outfit. Mm. On, you know, from made by some Italian chap who've been told on this website it's amazing, who I've never heard of and know nothing about and don't understand the process or any, you know, the, the buy-in is purely on that aspirational thing. There's no buy-in on seemingly anything else. They're hoping that that brand and that platform has done all that for them. And I, I personally, I find that troubling because it, it's really lazy and it, and I, I, I struggle with the amount of money they're going to spend on stuff that's not that great. Mm. Really, mm. it's I've funny because you can always see the difference, can't you? Though, in terms of the people that actually have some form of style that they, even if it's something that's like well-defined style that they just follow, but it's their, you know, it's themselves that sort of drive that, and you know, where you know, buy the stuff, knowing exactly why they're buying the stuff. You can always see the difference between that person and then the person that walks in. To a retailer and says, "I have a thousand grand, uh, or oh, sorry, I have a thousand pounds for the next two months. Uh, can you make me look cool? You know, yep. and then like you can always tell the difference between those people, or at least I'm, be, I'm imagining that I can. Yeah, you, you sometimes see that with musicians as well. You can sort of tell bands and musicians that have have gone to a stylist and and got somebody to style them or you can tell the ones that kind of have their own take on clothing you know i think that's another sort of visual example an obvious example of it um but yeah i mean uh, if you walked into like a savile tailor and, and said like make me look good in a suit and it's unlimited supply you're going to get a suit that's going to look good on you know, whatever shape you are but it's it's everything else that so it goes with it. It's the you know what you're supposed to drink, what you're supposed to smoke, what you're where you're supposed to eat, um, what you're supposed to have in your home. You know, it's it's buying into that. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very, I, I got approached by a high end um, car fragrance company that basically sell air fresheners to your car 
that are about 100, 200 pound a pop. What? At an event, I was like, it's an air freshener. It smelled lovely. It was, you know, it yeah. was lovely tooled metal case with beautiful leather filigree around it. And, you know, it was a nice looking item. But it's a car air freshener. Mm. 100 odd quid. Mm. I, you know, I, I, I was a bit aghast that but apparently there is a market for that. There are high worth individuals that are told that you need to have in your classic sports car this particular air freshener. Uh-huh. And um, suddenly, you know, you'll make even more money and be more attractive to women and your car will be worth more money. And the smell of it will remind you of the Pyrenean Alps when you went on your trip. And uh, it was just a bit, they were overselling a, you know, it's a lovely car air freshener. I can't imagine how it costs 100, 200 pounds to make an air freshener for a car. Yeah. With whatever overhead you've got. But there, there is, there, there's obviously a, a, a kind of high-end market there somewhere, which is being sold as aspirational, particularly to men. And it's hanging on the classic male things of smoking, drinking, cars, women, mm. well suits, movie stars, you know, explorers, all the things we love and want to be and we never actually will be. Mm. But it seems to have been taken to a really odd extreme now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unless that makes me smell like Patrick Grant, I'm not interested. <laughs> yeah, back to Patrick again. <laughs> what does Patrick Grant smell like, though? Cheese and onion crisps. I mean, I can only dream. <laughs> he smells like Lancashire and pies, but the best ones. Yeah. I was did I, we were talking about briefly about my rabbit hole. Does anybody else do that and just completely rabbit hole on trying to find a bonkers item that's amazing and is going to change your life, and you can spend hours researching it and finding stuff about it, or is that something that? I, it's the, it's the thing I come to. It's like I everything I purchase menswear wise, pretty much, I've researched. I know how it's made, where it's made, what it's made from, yeah. by who, how old it is, you know, the whole background of where it comes from. And then I, you know, generally you see something, and that's that's how it all starts. It's visual, isn't it? You see something amazing, go that's amazing on Pinterest or anywhere when you're searching for stuff. And then how do you research everybody? How do you guys research? the item you want and how do you then go about getting it i guess because i find that quite fascinating because yeah that's it really guys mm. well know. it's a it's a question of hitting google isn't it and then uh, probably finding lots of old blogs which haven't been updated for donkey's years where the images may have disappeared uh, you'll find snippets of info here and there at least if it's really obscure and then you're hitting ebay you're hitting really strange sort of classified sites around the world, uh, Grailed, uh, Market, uh, the various Japanese sites. Uh, And I think the more obscure it is, the more it sucks you in Uh, because you don't really want something that's easy to find. I mean, if I could find what I really desire just by nipping to town on my bike, there's nothing in it. It's too easy. Mm-hmm. I, but but if I can find it, say misrepresented, misdescribed, so I'm likely the only person who's looked at it and realised what a gem it is, then I'll be all over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm 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 very similar to that, Nick. Where um, if if I'm wanting to buy something, so if I've decided to buy something, then. 
I have to find out who makes the very best one. So, you know, am I missing something? Is there a brand where some obscure small brand that makes the very best of these items? Um, and then how much does that go for? How much will that go for secondhand? What's classed as a bargain? Um, and then look at what's kind of mid-range in that particular item. Um, and, you know, what what could I buy that would be equal quality, but wouldn't be maybe quite as expensive. So, for instance, if you wanted, I think last summer, I wanted a decent um, Breton top. And I sort of researched to see, I'd assumed there would be an original brand of them somewhere. And there was one or two brands that, that seemed to be um, slightly better, um, but were, were considerably more expensive and still expensive secondhand. So, you know, it was then thinking, right, when's the best time to buy that? Probably winter. Um, what would constitute a bargain, blah, blah, blah. And just kind of going going down that way. Um, uh, you know, and then like knitwear, when you were, you were talking about earlier on, um, about sort of what, what types of, of items become fashionable. So you were saying about the sort of Nordic jumper, which, again, there's still loads of them out there, but they tend to be fairly expensive. A lot of them have been put through a washing machine, so they've shrunk. Um, you know, so what what brands could I get if I did want one? Where would I get it a bit cheaper? Um, what would be constituting a bargain, et cetera, et cetera? So it's like anything. You know, if you buy a new bike, you, you kind of something that you've maybe not, thought about um you suddenly go down a hole of of what are the best brands you know why am i paying more for this what's the best uh, uh kit to go with it what's the best uh you know or scarves or anything really is yeah it's, you either like just go and buy something or you do do that research and you do find out i've um got two jumpers that will be arriving, I think, the beginning of next week that both have like fairly interesting labels that um that I've never heard of before, but I've been able to find out a little bit about that they're probably worth a hell of a lot more than I paid. Um and it's gonna lead me down another little rabbit hole that we were we were talking about just earlier on in the week there, Nick, as well, you know. So um but yeah, yeah, and that, that's kind of what makes it interesting though, isn't it? Well, I was going to say, I think the unifying theme here is that we're a retailer's worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, we, like, we, if, if, it were, if, if customers were just like us, if most customers were just like us, you would just never have any retail shop on any high street store surviving. Uh, we'd, be, we'd be banned from every one of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you and if you do come into contact with customers like us, you know you're in for a few days of back and forth messaging while we inquire about every minute detail uh -huh. and and might just end up ghosting you anyway. Or my favourite is uh, when you talk to somebody in a, in a men's brand, you know, a higher end men's wear shop that know absolutely nothing about what they're trying to sell you. And you've already done all the research, yet they're desperate to sell it to you. That always drives me a little bit. Yeah. Actually, don't know what you're talking about. Just, just stop. You're digging. You're putting me off this sale. Yeah, you 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 expect that if somebody's working there, that they're going to have some 
sort of interest in, in, in what they're what they're selling, you know, and what they're what they're trying to flog you. They need to have some but generally that's not not the case, is it, unfortunately? Well, I'm a bit half and half because half the time I walk into retail shops, uh, I don't want really to engage because most of the time I end up, it feels like someone's trying to give me a hard sell. Right. On the other hand, on the other hand, I often then feel disappointed with the level of service you get when you do ask questions about particular things. So like an example that has come up uh, for me a few times is I've walked into several shops that stop Visvin. Um, and so I'm desperate for someone to explain to me exactly why uh, it's so expensive. And it's not, you know, just about the money. It's not that. But I'm assuming there is something uh, that at least partly will justify why it's, you know, so unusually <laughs> expensive. Uh, but again, uh, I've never actually had someone explain something like that to me. And so at the same time, I get annoyed that, you know, someone always wanted to tell me a story about how, you know, it was, again, made out of unicorn hair by nuns in some remote village. I do sometimes then want that story, and it's and often the case that I can't actually get that story when I do want it, which is actually quite frustrating. I find I find the only way to actually get the answer is go to manufacturer half the time for that sort of stuff, which is really a little bit over the top sometimes. But I have done it, and you're kind of like, okay. And then having occasionally very long-winded conversations over sort of Google Translate with somebody in Japan or Russia or somewhere who's explaining how they've done something to me. And that that, that I find interesting to the point. I've obviously, I've, I've bought into something enough to actually want to buy it then. You know, there's, there's no question I'm not going to buy something if I've made that much effort about it, really. Yeah, but the thing is, the, the, it's interesting from a wholesaler's perspective because you sort of expect the retailer to do their homework and present, you know, the goods in the best way possible. But that sort of that that level of service with the retailers is probably lost because you know most people don't have that kind of staff anymore. And the problem with that though is when you've got that because it's going to be usually high end clever stuff, you can then circumnavigate. Well, I tend to circumnavigate the the the, the shop and go straight to source. Mm. So when I went a couple of years ago, went and bought some Rolling Dub Trio boots. They're amazing boots. I went to Son of Stag. They were a thousand pounds. They told me all about them. They sold them to me very well. They told me nearly everything I needed to know. I then went to Japan and bought them for two hundred. Right. Okay. Yeah. So they they've done their job, and they probably done, they've done a very good job. And I'm sure there are lots of people like me who couldn't be bothered to then circumnavigate it, go via Zen Market, a seller in Japan, and, and get it shipped. So they probably make quite a lot of money doing that. But I was kind of like, well, you've told me about it. Great. I, I had an inkling. They were great. You've explained how great they are. I'm now going to do the cost analysis bit, and I know I can get them a lot cheaper from source than from you. Again, so retailers... It's I'm, a shame. I'm, I'm really sorry if any retailers are listening. You will hate us, and you hope that you know other people don't imitate. Uh, but I think, I mean, that must become more and more common, though. Well, surely with the internet, you, you can find anything if you search for it long enough. Yeah. That is the that is the huge problem for retailers these yeah. days because a lot of stuff they can't sell unless it's on on deep discount in the sales and when they're selling it at seventy percent they might be getting back the outlay they had to stock it but it's uh, it's the full price retail sales that are paying the rent and the wages and and the rest of their costs so the fact that people do like you do John bad boy. Uh-huh. Uh, 
is killing the shops because they, well, I mean, they don't need to take the piss when they're setting their prices. That is a valid point. But uh, it is their full price sales that keep them keep them going. Mm. And that's true. I, I've bought shit. I bought my red rings from them fairly recently because I wanted to replace a pair of red ring boots. I did the classic thing, typed in the red ring and the code number because you can find that very easily. They had red wing Chelsea boots cheaper than anybody else. Straight in, dish, dush, dush, really easy sale. Three days back at home. My old pair have gone on eBay. They got sold off, and it was a replacement for something that I love and use a lot. So it's, you know, it swings in roundabouts. Like they, they, I wouldn't have bothered looking at them at all if I hadn't talked to them previously. So it's, yeah, they're getting something from me. I'd like to mention one thing that I find about online online buying. It was quite a revelation, really, um, that I haven't thought of it before. But I realised one day that if I could actually try on stuff before I bought it like I could in a shop in town, I'd actually buy a lot less online than when I'm just sitting there obsessing over sizing and measurements and hoping it's going to look good. But, I mean, a lot of the time you order stuff and it gets back and it's sort of, uh, it wasn't quite like you wanted it. Mm. You're talking about new things, new clothing. New and secondhand, really. I mean, it, uh, no, I, being in Norway, I have a problem that you have uh, about five weeks until you hit this problem in the UK um, with the borders and uh, having to pay tax and VAT on stuff. Because mm. once a parcel hits Norway here and I've paid the fees on it, it's pretty much impossible to return it right. without a massive amount of hassle and probably losing about half the money. Uh. Yeah, so you're kind of stuck, stuck with it. Um, it's, bad, it's bad enough in this country, to be honest, Nick, with stuff like that. I didn't buy anything from the States or Japan. The shipping and you know the um, VAT and the customs charges mean unless you're buying something really expensive, sending it back is pointless. So yeah, I've I've done exactly that. Whereas you know, my wife, we buy loads of stuff from Next. She tries it on, sends it back. Tries it on, sends it back, and there's no that big store thing seems to work but yeah buying specialist items long distance is tricky and particularly not trying and things and you know somebody's idea of what you know if you ask someone is the jacket a size 46 they'll go well armpit to armpits 23 so that's 46 well no that's a 44 really because it goes and there's lots of conversations about that are you measuring you know it it becomes quite problematic in getting just the right measurements Oh, it's about that. About that. We, you know, and then they admit we could be half an inch out either way. You know, well, half an inch is quite a big difference if you're buying a pair of shoes. Yeah. Or the waist of something. It means it's going to fall down, or it's not going to fall down. And then you're going to be sort of saying, "Well, I'm a, I'm a, a medium in Stone Island, uh, or a large in Montclair. Yeah. So, well, I'm small in this one." No. <laughs> And I, I, I've got shoes that I vary from size seven and a half to size ten and a half. Mm. That's a fairly big variation in just shoes. So if you go in other clothing sizes, yeah, I vary from you know, and depending on the fit you want. And I've fallen. I sold a size forty Guernsey sweater a little while ago on eBay, measured as size forty, labelled as size forty. I'm a forty-five inch chest. I wear it. I wear it tight. Shipped it to somebody. Her husband apparently always wears a small to medium and it was like a straight jacket on it. So can she send it back? I'm like, well, what size is he? A 38HS. Well, this is a 40. So it's directly too big for him. And you know, to and throwing on you know, a 20 quid sale on eBay was just 
a pain in the arm. Mm. Really. That could be the biggest case of denial I've heard this year. He may have been a smaller medium when he was 20, but now he's 67. Yeah, that was. I think a lot of pies that. have gone by. But equally, equally good, good old eBay because it was not retur- returned as not described. I still have to accept a return on it. So you kind of go. That, that's quite, there are other people this must happen to, and people that sell more stuff than me, and people that come up, you know, on sheer volumes probably get more issues. And it was, it just struck me as a odd thing. And you know, I people selling to me full foul as I sell to them, and you know, there's, there's a mismatch there somewhere. Yeah, I think there's there's just always that element of of gamble on eBay, and I think knitwear is one of the worst ones because, like, I know when I look at a jumper whether it's shrunken or whether it's the the wool's felted, but for some reason, a lot of people that are selling it don't seem to to be aware of that, or you know, they're not aware that the jumpers is is as short as it is wide kind of thing, or and and think that that's unusual, but or the photos don't show it properly and there's always that element of risk isn't isn't there with those and, and as you say with the pit to pit size you know quite often you'll say if they don't give you a pit to pit and, and they just say the label will say say 44 chest and you say like what's the pit to pit and they'll just say well it's 22 and you go well no it isn't is it you know you'll need to go back and um but the amount of people that don't ask don't respond as well to 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 questions you know and um they put up just a, a couple of crappy pictures not quite sometimes i quite like that because sometimes it's a gamble that'll pay off um and you think it's putting other people off so um it's putting other people off buying so mm, um maybe i'll take the chance and i'll be the one that, that gets the bargain and sometimes it's hit and sometimes it's missed. and for me sometimes that's just part of the part of the fun of it um that you, you kind of just you, you take that chance you know um but i would never sell like that i'd always sell being as clear and concise and with with my descriptions and as good a picture as i can um but when when you're sort of faced and sometimes you say sometimes it sometimes it pays off and there was a, a jumper last year that had been described as a large and wouldn't fit my 10-year-old son when it arrived. It was too tight on him. So you kind of think, surely somebody would have looked at that and thought, is that a large, a large what? You know, it was sold as a, an adult jumper. It was, I don't know. But again, that, that's when it goes wrong. But when it goes right, it's it's good. And that's the, to me, that's part of, the, part of the fun at times, you know. But that's different if you're spending £100 or £200 it's fine when you're spending ten or twenty pounds, but where are you at on that, uh, Ducky? In terms of buying online, um, I well, the thing is, I I tend to the majority of the stuff I buy is vintage, so and I quite like buying vintage in store uh, because of that, because the the nature of vintage just means that it's easier, you know, in person. Various reasons, including for the retailer. I mean, it's it's a nightmare to take a million pictures and measure every item. Um, so to be honest, that that's where I spend the majority of my money. Uh, when I do buy online, I know usually what I'm buying, and I do buy stuff on eBay. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm I guess I'm relatively flexible about how certain things fit me. 
I have I know my base sort of measurements and I go by those. Uh, but again, I'm quite narrow in my interest. So if it's a vintage item, you know, I typically know what it is and how the measurements have to be, and that's what I usually go for then. Um, and then if it's a modern thing, to be honest, there's only a handful of brands that I really buy on a so, somewhat regular basis. And I mean, Tender being one of them is a nightmare because um, buying, for example, but whether it's secondhand or new, buying Tender, you always have to look at the measurements. You can't go by size at all because I'm anything between a size two and a four. Um, so yeah, you have to go by measurements. And then even then, you know, it's not, it doesn't always work out. So yeah, it can be. It can be tricky. One thing I wanted to run by you guys before we um, before we call it a day. Um, I am told, and I have acknowledged that I am a really, really difficult person to get Christmas presents for, birthday presents similarly, because I basically have already researched and bought anything I wanted or would like, and it is impossible to know what to get me do you guys have the same problem and i'd also like to hear what are you hoping to get for christmas yes it's a nightmare it's my birthday in seven days so if you get anything posted to me now is your time to start getting it posted out um i have bought all of my presents from my family to myself because they can't buy things for me and my wife will wrap them up and give them to me and that's the easiest way or I just say, give me socks and send people a link to nice socks. And it's easy. All this aftershave. That, that's pretty much how it goes. I'm an absolute nightmare to buy for because very much like you, Nick, I tend to research everything or I've got what I want. And there's very often not much in that, really. So, yeah. Yes and no. What, what I tend to do is throughout the year, I go on to Amazon and things that I think I would quite like that I wouldn't necessarily buy for myself i'll put in a wish list and my wife can just sort of dip into that and buy a few items and it'll tend to be it'll not be clothing obviously it'll tend to be uh, old books um stationery um stationery products that kind of thing so it's more i'll like they're the things that that I tend not to to maybe buy for myself stationary, but if, if I can give her an idea of what I like, then she she she'll buy that for me. Um, but with clothes and stuff, yeah, she she kind of knows not to to get me anything. She's more than happy for me to buy clothes for her, um, because she's not she doesn't really bother buying them for herself if you know what I mean and she's quite happy for me to choose like things at Christmas because I kind of know what she likes and she she's she's actually quite happy for that but um but yeah so it, wor it works out okay um to say there's things that like you guys I, I, I like to buy myself in research and and I'll buy for myself however um there are things that I like to to get at Christmas and, and birthdays and stuff um even aftershave to an extent, yeah, aftershave too. But generally, stationery and books would be the two things that I'll receive at Christmas. Uh, when you say stationery products, do you mean sort of sort of fancy special stationery products or sort of like packs of A4 paper? Uh, <laughs> no, um, no, it would tend to be 
um, things like nice pencils or um, uh, pens or sets of, you know, drawing pens or um, uh, cases for things or um, like a drawing board or just anything like that. So rather than like, you know, fancy high-end writing paper, not not things like that, but more um, like nice pens and pencils and things. I, I've always got quite a lot of them and I quite like them. And like, again, that's a, a kind of a sort of rabbit hole I went down of researching what, what are the best brands for for pencils and, and uh, you know, how much are they and that kind of thing. And um, I'm sort of, if I do go to a shop, it's it generally will be like a, a sort of high end stationers or art supply shop um, that I, I like to go. I like these things, yeah. I like to to buy these things. I remember a few years ago there was a guy that would uh, hand sharpen your pencils. He was like an artisanal pencil sharpener. Uh huh. Do you know about <laughs> no? That might be that might that might be for this year then. <laughs> no, there's there's a pencil sharpener that's come out. Um, this year that I can't, God, I can't remember where I saw it on, on Instagram. I think it was an advert on Instagram that when I linked on it and it was £60 and it was like a, a solid piece of brass um, and it was like replaceable um, blades, you know. Um, but I I tend to like to sharpen my pencil with a pen knife, which is, again, a little thing that I, I quite like having pen knives and knives and things. Um Sure, we've obviously got the same algorithm because I saw that pencil sharp and thought I want one of those for Christmas. Did you see it, John? Yeah, I did. I use I use a uh, ducks hand hand thingied German made brass one with interchangeable blades because I quite like stationery too. So yeah, your ducks little brass German hand uh-huh. sharpener way forward. I love a, I love a look at that one. Then I used to quite like the. Um... When the teachers had the desktop ones that you could you put your pencil in your tundi. Um yeah, it's just something quite nice. I'm I'm getting into woodworking a bit now as well, so I don't know whether to go all in on it and set aside some space and um get some woodworking tools and things. You know, I've got the odd bits and bobs here, you know, nice a few nice tools, but I'm decided whether to go kind of all in on woodworking and um i'd need to do something with the garage is kind of falling apart so i would i would need to do something with the garage maybe before i turn that into um a wee workspace or whatever so that that's kind of my next decision whether I, whether i do that or not but that could be another uh, another rabbit hole for me to go down it's woodworking yeah i've got the shoes and the leather i've started um and leather working and I was a bit tempted to go at Christmas. Right, everybody at Christmas buy me a hole punch and a leather saw and stuff like that. And I kind of went, that's just another thing to stick in my office that I'll fiddle about with and won't actually do anything constructive. Yeah. I'll make one wall, then I'll just go, no, I've had it. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 that's it, isn't it? It's sticking with it. So it's like, I'm kind of a bit. Like I'm less likely, to, uh, less inclined to to go down a road now unless I know I'm going to stick with it, um, unless I know I'm 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 actually going to stay with it. You know. I look forward to hearing the podcast from you two pencil sharpener fetishists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where where are you at uh, for Christmas, Ducky? 
uh i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty you know same uh, as, as you guys i'm pretty tough um unfortunately it makes it difficult um my my wife is always really good at finding me stuff um because she can be just as nerdy as me or uh, actually call it thoughtful really and sort of research stuff and come up with things um we've increasingly gone for things where we buy each other more of a sort of experiences, right? So things that you can go and do together. That That's sort of a good, a good way of um, avoiding that issue. Uh, but that's going to be tough this year. Uh, but then I guess, yeah, for me, it's um, themes. So people know that I like uh, peanuts or that I like, uh, as in the cartoon, uh, pe- the peanuts, <laughs> um, or that I like maybe uh, tender, I, uh, you know, uh, trestle store items, or I also have an Amazon wish list with uh, photography books. So, you know, people that maybe, yeah, where it's unfair to uh, expect them to know loads about my niche interests, uh, it's probably best to send them just that sort of uh, options of uh, things. Uh, but with, with my wife, I have to say, she tends to be pre- pretty pretty damn good at uh, spotting uh, what to get me. I always have this feeling that if you really knew me, you'd know what I'd like. Oh. <laughs> Which means I always get disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I'm sort of setting myself up to fail here and everyone else. Do you ever use that pen you got, Nick? The the brass one. No, was it Mont Blanc pen you you were given or something, wasn't it? Oh no, no my wife uses that. Mm-hmm. But she gave me a Caveco a brass one the year after, which I use all the time. Oh, that's mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. Mont Blanc was a lovely gift, but wasn't really anything that I wanted. And now that's made official for the whole world to know. <laughs> no, nobody's sending me any Mont Blanc pen. Right, I promise I won't get you one. I'd like a, a nice watch though which is probably because we've been talking about the rake and people with more taste, money than taste and all this. But uh, yeah. a, really big, a really big, tasteless Italian one or actually a nice watch, Nick? Well, I mean, Ducky, I don't know if you guys heard the episode me and Ducky did where Ducky tried to convince me that uh, watches are really cool. And, and he did kind of. Sounds like it worked. But, uh, I mean, not one of these big flashy ones. Yeah. No, but a nice, elegant watch. Yeah. Maybe something like Thatcher Grattas. I'll, I'll, I'll sell you a 1970s Hoyer, you know, if you want. You know, a couple of. Because you've got your eye on something else. That's <laughs> costing possibly some money. I've got a few watches knocking around. Have you, have you got your mind? Have you got your mind on something, Nick? Is there a what? Is, is there a, a particular one that you've seen that you liked, or? I tend to like Omega. Uh huh. Uh-huh. But I I did get really curious about Raketa when I did the interview with uh, with oh, the guy yeah. who runs it. Which I thought that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, a f- fantastic story. Go for a vintage raquetta, and that's something you can ask for with the with a sort of Christmas present. Because I guess that this is the thing. Like, uh, you know, I mean, depending on who who's giving it to you, it's maybe unfair to expect a two thousand pound present. Um, so something like an, a vintage raquetta is maybe a more realistic thing than a, a modern. Raquettas are about hundred hundred and fifty, I think. Yeah. There's always a few for sale. Or, or just do the uh, DH Gate thirty-eight dollars for an original, an original fake uh, Amiga Seamaster, and uh, it'll last you a couple of years, and it's battery operated. You can bin it and pretend you've got a really nice watch. There is that. There's always lots of nice um, older mechanical watches 
on eBay sort of under or around the 50 quid mark that, you know, again, it's it's Timex for some reason seems to um, make good money now. But other sort of more obscure brands or, or older brands that, you know, a mechanical watch, as long as it's been sort of looked after, wound on, it'll last you forever. You know, I've got a few older ones that I'll just wear from time to time. Um, if you put a decent strap on them, um, and they're not too knackered, then yeah, they're nice. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. yeah I, I was like, charity shops. Surprised. I've got my um, Secura, nice diver's watch from the late sixties, early seventies. It was seventy-five quid in a charity shop, but I think that's a bargain. To be fair. What brand was it? Sorry, Secura. All right. The, the prequel to Bretling. Yeah. Those guys. It's, yeah. it's gold. It's not particularly fashionable now. Uh huh. But you know. 75 quid for a working automatic watch in a charity shop. Mm-hmm. It's got a look to it. It's got a weight to it. Tells the time. It looks cool. But you were, I'm always surprised with watches, particularly gold ones from the 70s, 80s, how cheap they are because people don't seem to want them. No. Certainly, like, a slimmer a slimmer watch in, in gold tends to be not as popular now does it um you know people tend to like a stainless steel one a sort of bigger sized um chunky thing will will tend to always make a little bit more money seiko seems to be or seiko seems to be making some sort of comeback The, the prices for them tend to be quite high now um you know even for sort of fairly fairly basic ones that were that were quite common in the in the eighties. They they seem to go for quite big money. I've got one but it doesn't work so I need to either get a battery or get it fixed. I don't know what the matter is but um it's it's nice enough, you know. Um but yeah I mean the the prices of, of sort of luxury watches has risen not it's it's risen higher than than inflation rate over over the last sort of at least twenty to thirty years. It's it's like if you bought a basic um, Rolex Oyster stainless steel date, what mid nineties would have cost you about eighteen hundred pounds. Um, the equivalent watch now is what four and a half grand or something. No, I, 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 my first ever paycheck. I bought myself an Amiga Seamaster for 800 quid from somewhere in the Strand. And now that same watch is three grand. So, yeah. Yeah. It seems one of the better investments. That and the 1950s Ventile have been my two best investments over the last 30 years by a long way. Well, I bought, when I was 25, I bought a older Rolex at the time so I think it's it's a 1973 or 1974 now at that point the new ones were 1750 um this one which looks fairly similar it's a wee bit more basic and it's it's not automatic again it's it's a manual one it's what's called the precision range which they stopped making in the mid 80s but that, at the time that was just under a thousand pounds which was the kind of the cheapest one that they had second hand and i i could have like either paid for that or i could have financed the more expensive one and i think at the time the submariner one was about 2100 
and there was options for finance at those points, you know, like interest free over like two years or whatever. And I, I could have done, but I didn't. I just I thought, right, I wanted to just I had that money saved up. So that was what I wanted to do. Um, but it's cost me in services that much again, if you know what I mean. So I think I didn't get it serviced for about, uh, well, I don't know, 15 years or something. And um, when I had to get it serviced, it cost me about 500 quid. And then um, I had to get it serviced five years again after that. But what I found is they're really good. If if something went wrong in between the services, even after, say, three years, they the fixed it free. They just said, well, we, it should have lasted more than that without any quibbles, which because I was thinking, right, if it's, I can't afford another 500 quid, you know, it's like I'm having to save up between services for, to get the bloody thing serviced, you know, but I just wear it every day because I just think, well, there's no point putting it in a drawer, you know, um, you, you kind of have to, and it's scratched to bits, and but every time I send it away, it comes back looking like new, um, so it's kind of worth it in that respect, but I would never be able to afford to buy one now, you know, I wouldn't even consider it. So Nick, yeah, get yourself a good watch, son. Yeah, we just enabled you. I have this Apple Watch, and it sort of does does watchy type things. Uh, I mean, it doesn't look good when I'm smoking cigars or racing vintage race cars and all that Mm. in my bespoke suits and that. But you know, it sort of works. Steve McQueen would not have been a Steve McQueen if you had an Apple Watch on. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're you're too too rugged for it. Apparently, Steve McQueen is not the best of. No, uh, no, he's not. Yeah, but he's still kind of held up as this male icon, isn't he? He's like, you know, oh, he's got the best cars. Oh, he's got the best watches. Oh, he wore this and oh, he wore that. You know, you like. It's the image. It's the image that people are in love with, rather than the person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and is that okay to be a style icon if you were a total arsehole in reality? Well, if Patrick Grant's a total arsehole, I don't care. <laughs> I was made from my personal view. Yes, I'm an arsehole. I'm a style icon. <laughs> I don't know if you get to choose that, uh, John. Well, I am. I, I, I've, I've been telling people, like like the Gallagher's told everybody they're the best band in the world. I've been telling everybody I'm a, I'm a gay icon and a style icon for about twenty years, and it's it's starting to stick. People are starting to believe it. Hmm. Honestly, a gay icon. Well, yep. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Me, Kylie. We're there. Okay, guys. I think it's uh, time to to um, to finish up now. Uh, I've got a lot of editing to do. (laughs) So um, two hours is going to be tough, Nick. Good luck. Well, I'm going to have to try to edit out all the all the feedback from Sean uh, because normally I send it through an automatic uh, routine that sort of balances out stuff, but that means I can't sort of uh, mute out the bits where the feedback is. Sorry about that. that. I'll see what I I can see what I I can do about it. Hear the feedback, so you know. Not say that makes it okay. I'm just saying that. I can't hear it at this end, certainly. Yeah. Well, not to worry. I'll see what I can do. Okay. Okay, guys. Thanks a lot for guesting today. This was wonderful. And uh, I hope you enjoyed it as well, as much as me. Possibly even more or just less. 
astounding silence. So the question was <laughs> I think we obvious. all agree. <laughs> I think we all agree. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. It was good fun. Thanks, Nick. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. And uh, bye bye. And there we are. That was the end of episode 34 and season one of Garmology. No need to worry though, season two is right around the corner and I've got a lot of lovely guests lined up already. Uh, thanks to my guests in this episode, uh, Sean, aka These Rough Notes on Instagram from Glasgow. There was John, aka Heavy John, J O N, from south coast of England. And uh, Ducky, uh, Prancer, Deluxe and Rugged Frills on Instagram. Uh, you'll find all three of them on previous episodes of Gomology as well. In a one-on-one -on -one situation, this was an experiment to see how we'd do as a foursome. Uh, if you want to get in touch, it's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. The blog is on welldressedad.com and I'm predictably welldressedad on Instagram. Um, if you'd like to leave a review or a rating for the podcast, please do. We're available on all platforms. And uh, I'm your host, Nick Johannesson. Thanks a lot and catch you again soon. Bye-bye.